And if I could get everyone else to turn your Bible to the book of Mark, we're going to look at Mark chapter 6, where we left off last week in our continuing study of the book of Mark. A number of months ago, we started a series of studies of the book of Mark, and this series is called The Cross-Shaped Life. If you've been with us, you know our journey has brought us here to about the middle of chapter 6. If you have not been with us, that's okay. You will be able to plunge right in and and, uh, pick up our study this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles underneath the chairs on which you're sitting, and if you pull out a Bible from that rack, you can turn to page 1070, 1070, and find the passage we're going to look at today. Here's our text. It's Mark 6, 14 through 29. Mark 6, 14 through 29. I'm going to read the passage, and then we will pray and talk about it. Hear the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, And it is the activity of Jesus and his disciples. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. And yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The word of the Lord. Michael prayed already, but let's look again to the Lord for his blessing on our study of his word. Father, thank you that you loved us so much. You not only sent your son Jesus to be our savior, but you left us a continuing testimony to your will and your heart, which is the Bible, your word. Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll come and help us to see this great man, John the Baptist. But even more than that, we ask you to show us the greater man, Jesus, that we might be changed by him, that we might love him and go from here making disciples in his name. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. November 9th, 1938 is a date that lives in infamy for European Jews. I cannot pronounce German, so I'll try to say it the best I can, but it was called Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass. Throughout the German Reich, Nazis torched synagogues and burned down houses and schools and businesses and killed nearly a hundred Jews. And in the next few days, some 30,000 Jews were sent off to concentration camps. And of course, as you know, for the next seven years, things only went from bad to very much worse. You've heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I suspect, many of you. But perhaps you've never heard of one of his contemporaries, whose name was Julius von Jan. Like Bonhoeffer, von Jan was an evangelical pastor and a member of the Confessing Church of Germany. The Sunday following the night of the broken glass, he refused to stay silent. Knowing very well that criticizing Hitler and the Nazis would bring him into much trouble, von Jan preached a sermon entitled, Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. In that sermon, he said that God was the true Führer of Germany. Can you imagine? And then he addressed his congregation, but also his countrymen with these words. He said, why do you become unfaithful to the true God? Why do you no longer attend to his commands? O land, dear homeland, hear the word of the Lord. Here we see the price we're paying for the great falling away from God and from Christ, for organized anti-Christianity. What a horrible harvest will grow from this if God does not send us grace for sincere repentance. After preaching that sermon, Julius was dragged out into the streets and beaten by a gang of 500 Nazis. He was taken to City Hall where he was tried for being a traitor and thrown into jail. Told to take a loyalty oath to Hitler, he refused to sign the document. He was found guilty of treachery by a Nazi judge and sentenced to 16 months in prison. After his release, he kept preaching. In 1943, he was sent to the Russian front. He returned to Germany after falling ill and died in 19. 64. What does it mean to you to be a disciple of Jesus? When you hear stories like that of people who suffered for their faith, what does it mean to you every day in a practical way on an everyday level to be one who follows Christ? You know, I suspect that if I asked you to make a list of 10 to 15 things that come to mind when you think about what it means to be a Christian, suffering would probably not be on the list. We would think, I'm sure, of things like the forgiveness of our sins and having prayers answered and having peace through difficulty and um, a place in heaven to go to one day. But I'm not sure if suffering, hardship, and persecution would make the cut. 
But our text this morning says that if you are a believer in Jesus, you should be prepared to suffer. It may not be in the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Julius Van Jan and others like them in other parts of the world suffered. Persecution comes in a lot of different flavors and colors. But if you're a believer in Christ, and if that faith in Christ is really genuine, you should be prepared to suffer for it. The cross-shaped life that we've been talking about for many months now involves suffering. It invites persecution. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it famously in The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So we're going to talk about a happy subject this morning, is persecution. And I want to bring you three things from our text today. The reality of persecution, the reason for it, and finally, the reward for it. Reality, reason, reward. First, let's dive in with the reality of persecution for the believer in Jesus. Suffering in some way for your faith is unavoidable. So says the Bible. Jesus in John 15 said that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul writing to the Philippians said, It's been granted to you not only to believe on Christ, but also to suffer for Him. Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 said, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He doesn't leave much, if any, wiggle room there, does he? All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted in some way. And we certainly see that in this story, do we not? Notice that here we have another one of Mark's famous sandwiches. Uh, Matt has been, during his sermons on Mark, pointing out to us pretty regularly that this is a, 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 a figure of uh, writing or a form of writing that Mark uses quite a lot. And here is another sandwich. Let me explain what I mean. In the last passage that we looked at last week, chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, you could consider that the top slice of bread, okay? And in that passage that we looked at last week, Jesus sends his disciples out on mission. He sends them out two by two to proclaim and to demonstrate the gospel. And then in the passage we're going to look at next week, down in verse 30, that's the bottom slice of bread. In that verse, it shows us that the disciples return from their mission and they tell Jesus about everything that they had done and everything they taught. But that's not all Mark gives us. If that were all Mark gave us, we would just have bread and not much of a sandwich. So in between those two passages, Mark sandwiches the text that I read a moment ago. See, if you didn't have this text here, you would say, Great, disciples! You're going out on mission. You're going out to uh, cast out demons. And then when you come back in verse 30, look how successful you were. You healed a bunch of people. You taught a, a, a lot of crowds. What a great success you were. Why then did Mark put the sandwich meat into the text that we just read a moment ago? He did it in order to make sure that we understand that being faithful to Jesus being on mission with Jesus, following Jesus exposes us to difficulty and to suffering. 
Being on mission with Jesus involves suffering. It invites persecution. And we know that because of our text this morning. So let's now dive into the story itself and pick it apart. There are a lot of details in here. I'm not going to have time to cover all of them, but I'll do my best to cover the most of them. Look at verse 14, the verse that we started with. In that verse we meet King Herod. Now this is King, not um, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was his father. This is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas ruled from about 4 BC to 39 AD. And as I said, he was Herod the Great's son. Now who was Herod the Great? Well, you know Herod the Great from that awful situation in Matthew chapter 2 when Herod the Great tried to murder the young Jesus by killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem who were two years of age and under. That was Herod Antipas's father, Herod the Great. I wish he weren't called Great, but that's his title. No, Herod Antipas was the seventh son of Herod the Great. Herod had at least seven sons that we know of. And Herod Antipas was not really a king. Now here you have a family tree that I've showed you and it's very simplified because it gets pretty complicated as you'll soon find out. I've only got four of Herod the Great's sons listed up there, but you see that Herod Antipas is the third one over from the left. And he was not really a king, even though he's called King Herod here in verse 14. He was a tetrarch. That was his actual title. A tetrarch was a ruler of one-fourth of a kingdom. And Herod, the, uh, Herod Antipas was the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. So when you look at this uh, family tree, let me show you some things that happened. Herod Antipas took for his wife a woman named Phasaelus. Phasaelus, she was the daughter of another king named Nabatea or Arabia. And then as you see to the left of Antipas, he had a, several half-brothers and one of them was named Philip I. Philip I married a woman named Herodias who is figured into our story this morning. Herodias happened to be the daughter of his half-brother Aristobulus. And they had a daughter whose name was not given here in our text, but we know from the historian Josephus that she was Salome. You might have heard of Salome. We'll, we'll be talking about her a little bit later. She's mentioned in verse 22. Well, here's what happened. One day, Herod Antipas, the star of our story this morning, was visiting his half-brother Philip when he saw Philip's wife Herodias. And, and he instantly fell in lust with her. In fact, he became infatuated with Herodias, and Herodias became infatuated with Herod Antipas. And the two agreed to run off together. So Antipas left Faceless, Herodias left Philip, and Antipas and Herodias got married, meaning that now Herod Antipas was the husband of both his sister-in-law and his niece. By the way, the story gets even more fascinating because over to the right of Antipas is Philip II, another half-brother of his. He would marry Salome, meaning that she was both his wife, his grandniece, his niece, and his stepniece, or something like that. <laughs> um, the Kardashians have nothing on Mark chapter 6. Anyway, let's go back to the text. I think you get the picture. It's a complicated one. In verses 14 and 15, people of the day are saying all kinds of things about Jesus. 
he's attracting a lot of attention. He's healing. He's casting out demons. He's making you know, quite a stir in the land. And some of the people who know about him think he's John the Baptist. Come back from the dead. Now, that's kind of ridiculous when you think about it because half of these people had seen John the Baptist and Jesus both alive at the same time. But nevertheless, after John's death, a lot of people thought Jesus was John come back from the dead. Who was John the Baptist? Let's refresh our memory. He was the messenger who prepared the way of the Lord. And he's called the Baptist in the Bible not because he was a Baptist. Um, he, he was a Presbyterian. Everybody knows that. No, he was called John the Baptist because he baptized people. Uh, so I sort of prefer John the Baptizer. But uh, anyway, the tradition is that he's called John the Baptist because he, people, he baptized people in the Jordan River. And you may remember he baptized Jesus. Well, like many others, Herod Antipas thinks Jesus might be John the Baptist reincarnate. He fears John has come back to haunt him. Why? Because he has John's blood on his hands. Look at verse 16. He says, John whom I beheaded has been raised. Ah, that's why Herod Antipas is worried. Verse 17 goes on to say, It was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. John the Baptist, in other words, suffered for his faith. He made a stand for God. He spoke the truth. He did something highly unpopular, but God wanted him to do it, and he paid for it with his life. Now let's bring him home a little bit. Thankfully, most of us in the English-speaking world are spared this kind of suffering. But not so in the rest of the world today. Did you know that over 100 million Christians today face physical, life-threatening religious persecution more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in the previous 19 combined. Every day throughout the world, 480 believers lose their life in the name of Christ. Maybe you've heard of Shabazz Bhatti. Shabazz Bhatti of Pakistan was the only Christian serving in Pakistan's cabinet. He was a devout Roman Catholic and an outspoken critic of Pakistan's blasphemy law, which makes it a crime to utter any derogatory remarks about Muhammad or the Quran or Islam. He spoke out openly against those laws, trying to defend people who had been arrested or even executed for their speech. Well, Bhatti was in his car with his driver on his way to work in Islamabad a few years ago when three or four gunmen jumped out, stopped Body's car and sprayed it with gunfire. Body was hit some 20 times by bullets. The driver rushed him to a nearby hospital, but he died along the way. A note was found near his blood-drenched car that said, A fitting lesson for the world of infidelity, the Crusaders, the Jews, and their aides. This is the fitting end of the accursed one, which will serve as an example to others 
And now with the blessing and aid of Allah, the Mujahideen will send all of you one by one to hell. In a video that was that uh, Bati had made prior to his death that was aired after the attack, a calm and defiant Shabazz Bati said, I prefer to die rather than compromise. I believe in Jesus Christ who has given his own life for us. I'm living for my community and I will die to defend their rights. I know what is the meaning of the cross and I'm ready to die. Persecution, you don't need me to tell you, is happening in our country too. It's usually not of that physical violent sort, but sometimes it is. I heard about someone in our church who was walking with a group of girls on her college campus. A couple of drunk guys came along and they started hitting on these girls. And then when they stopped doing that and started to walk away, this student spoke directly and very compassionately to one of the young men and said to him, Jesus loves you. He turned around and rushed at her and assaulted her. And she still bears today the injuries and the memories of that awful night. She shared the gospel and suffered for it. And stories abound in this room of people who right here in our church have been labeled because of their faith, have been ridiculed, have been thought stupid, have been thought not cool, have been cut off from family members, and any number of other things. All of that, suffering, that's the reality. It's unavoidable when our faith is genuine. In some form, in some fashion, at some time, the spirit of John the Baptist lives on in faithful Christians everywhere. So having seen its reality, let's talk about its reason. Why does persecution exist? Why did these things happen to Julius von Yan, to uh, Shabazz Bati, to this young college student, to you, to me? Why are Christians persecuted? Well, it's because of what Jesus says in John chapter 3. He says, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, darkness resists the light. When you stand up for Christ, when you share your faith, when you tell your conversion story, when you say to someone, I'm praying for you, when you let someone know you go to church, you, when you invite someone in your neighborhood to come with you to Easter Sunday, that's light. That's light invading the darkness of this world and the kingdom of Satan. And when you do those things, you will get resistance. Not always. Gratefully, we say that God is opening hearts everywhere. And sometimes we get the open door, but many times we get resistance. What did John the Baptist do that cost him his head? He challenged the prevailing worldview. He spoke truth to power. And when one does that, he or she will find resistance. In verse 18, we find out what John the Baptist actually said to Herod. It says, John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
Notice that verb, was saying. It's in the Greek imperfect tense, which we've talked about before. It means that he did it over and over and over, over and over. John the Baptist would not relent with this message of repentance to Herod Antipas. Herod, you know, had already put John in prison. But ironically, he sent for John again and again. It says in verse 20 that he heard him gladly. And every time John would come, you know, accompanied by the guard into the palace of Herod Antipas, he would say it again. Herod Antipas, you're in sin. You're guilty of incest and adultery. You divorced faithless and you married your brother's wife. It's not right, Herod Antipas. And John probably quoted scripture to Herod. Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 18 says, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. Leviticus 20 says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. Notice something really interesting. The law of God applies not only to believers, but to all of humanity. John the Baptist said, Herod, Herod was not a Jew. He was half Idumean and half Samaritan. He was a Gentile. And yet, John the Baptist says, Herod, it is not lawful. You're breaking the moral law of God. And this constant preaching against Herod's sin made Herod mad, but it made Herodias madder. It says in verse 19 that she had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. All right, so you know the rest of the story because I read it to you. Herod uh, turns his palace into a first century version of the Café Risqué. He throws this big birthday stag party. It's men only. Um, why do they call them gentlemen's clubs? He throws this big party. He invites all the VIPs of Galilee and Perea. The alcohol is flowing freely. People are getting drunker and drunker. And then they call for Herod's niece. Uh, sorry. What's Salome? <laughs> Whatever. Stepdaughter. They call for Salome and she comes in. She's just a teenager, but she's beautiful and she's seductive. She starts dancing for them. It's an erotic dance. The men are leering and lusting after Salome. Herod wants to impress his guests. So he says to Salome, ask me for anything you want and it's yours. Whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. It was sort of an exaggerated way of saying, look how generous I am, look how powerful I am. I'll give you anything you want, Salome. What do you want? And Herodias, her mother, sees this as a golden opportunity to destroy her nemesis, John the Baptist. So she tells Salome, her daughter, go back to the party and ask for the head of John. Well, Herod can't go back on his vow. He can't, you know, look weak. And even though it was a rash and a stupid vow, he needs to save face, and so John's fate is sealed. John, or rather, Herod uh, sins for the executioner. John the Baptist is beheaded, and his disciples take his body and lay it in a tomb. It's a very sad story, but not so much sad because of John the Baptist as it is sad because of Herod Antipas. 
Herod Antipas makes quite an interesting study, doesn't he? He's the perfect picture of what James says in James 1.8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That perfectly summarizes Herod. He was a double-minded man and he was unstable in all his ways. Think about it. He fears John the Baptist, it says in verse 20, but he fears his wife more. According to verse 20, he sees John as a righteous and holy man, but he sacrifices him on the altar of his own reputation. He hears John gladly, it says in verse 20, but not gladly enough to repent of his sin. And in verse 26, it says that Herod was exceedingly sorry that John has to die. Interestingly, that word exceedingly sorry is the same word used for the sorrow of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly before his death. He was very sorry that John had to die, but not sorry enough to do the right thing. No wonder it says in verse 20 that Herod was greatly perplexed. That word means that he was at a standstill. He was stuck. It was like someone standing at a, at a fork in the road, not knowing which way to go, either this way or that way, and so therefore he's just standing there, can't make up his mind which way to go. See, truth does two things. It attracts and it repels. And we see both of those being played out in Herod Antipas. He was attracted in some ways to John, but he was at the same time repelled as his behavior shows. Truth demands that you make a decision. You must choose. You have to go this way or that. You can't remain neutral with truth. For some people, truth is very attractive. You might have had that experience. When you shared the gospel or told someone about your faith, it immediately was met with a, a receptivity. That's that good soil that, Matt, that uh, Jesus told us about in that famous parable about the seeds and the sower. Many times the seed will be cast out and it will be received well. Some people find it attractive, but at other times people find the truth to be absolutely repugnant. Especially in our culture today, truth is not even believed to exist. And so when you step forward and claim to be speaking truth, don't be surprised if you are resisted, if you are found to be repugnant to people. People will say that they believe in toleration and tolerance until you say that they should believe what you say is true. And then that way they will not tolerate. They will say, I'm glad that you believe that that is true, but what you think is true is not necessarily true for me. Example. I believe, and our church teaches, that God instituted marriage for one man and one woman united for a lifetime in the holy bond of marriage, and that all other forms of sexual expression, hetero and homo, that are outside the bond of marriage between a man and a woman are sinful. That is a truth claim that's found in the Bible. And it may be that as time goes on in our country, a pastor like me saying that from a pulpit will get himself and maybe his parishioners in big, big trouble. But I believe that to be true, and our church teaches that. 
what will you do with that truth claim? You're at a crossroads with that, perhaps. Will you go this way? Will you receive it? Does it attract you? Or at the same time, does it repel you? I believe, and our church teaches, that abortion kills a real, live human being because human life begins at conception. Saying that is offensive to many people in our culture. And so we stand at a crossroads with that subject as well. And I could list many, many others. Do I believe these things are true and that you should believe them too? Yes, I do. But see, many people in our country and in our day think that people who say such things are narrow-minded and bigoted and uninformed and unenlightened. I want you to know I used to think that too. Before I became a Christian, I used to believe that people who would say things like I've just said a moment ago were off their rockers and out of their minds. Until I was challenged to read the Bible for myself with an open mind, and I did. And my life began to change. Maybe you disagree with our church's positions. Okay. You're welcome here. Let's talk. Let's talk about it. Let's investigate. Be willing to consider what the Bible says. Because one day you're going to have to make a decision about God's word. Whether you will embrace it or reject it. Do we believe that we understand all of the truth that's found in the Bible? No. Do we believe we have a corner on the truth? No. We know we're bound to be wrong about some things. But the things that I've talked about today and the main things that are taught in the Bible are so clear. We will hold them out and we will say, these things are true. And as time goes on, we may find out that Christians in America will face more and more of the violent and physical persecution that our brothers and sisters in other lands do. I pray not. But if not that, it will be the other kind of persecution. Pressure, legislation, being labeled, being thought stupid, being thought crazy. And so that's part and parcel of being a believer in Jesus. Well, as for Herod Antipas, what did he do? He heard the truth and he said, no, I don't want to go that way. I, I once heard a sermon about Herod Antipas and I thought the title was perfect. The title of the sermon was The Death of a Conscience. Because you really see how Herod Antipas's conscience withers and dies eventually. You know, conscience is a good thing. God speaks to us through our conscience. When we have feelings of guilt and shame about our behavior, they are meant to drive us to Jesus where we can confess our sin and where we can be forgiven and healed. And you can see God talking to Herod through his guilty conscience. Because Herod knows that John is a righteous man. He knows he doesn't deserve to die. So the door of opportunity is wide open for Herod Antipas here in Mark 6. It's his day of decision. He could change everything with just going this way instead of that. He could say, no, Salome, I won't hand you John's head on a platter. Herod could repent. He could believe the gospel. Conscience is pleading with Herod. Oh, but Herod makes his choice and goes that way. And it means not only death for John the Baptist, but death for Herod's soul. You know, the next time you see Herod Antipas, it's in Luke 23, where Herod has a chance to let Jesus off and doesn't do it. 
Instead, he treats Jesus with scorn and hands him over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. Refusing over and over again to listen to your conscience causes the gradual desensitization of your soul. I'll say that again. Refusing like Herod did over and over to listen to your conscience causes the gradual desensitization of your soul to God. Don't let that happen. Some of you to whom I'm speaking this morning know in your heart that some of the things you're doing are wrong. You're living by your standards, not God's. And God is pursuing you this morning. He's pursuing you through His Word. He's been pursuing you for a long, long time. Don't ignore Him. Consider what the Bible says. Listen to the voice of conscience. Listen to the promise of the Gospel. Come to me, says Jesus, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you the rest you desperately seek. Learn from Herod Antipas not to follow his direction. Well, we've seen the reality and the reason for persecution. Let's end up with the reward. What is the reward for persecution? Well, I can't improve on what Jesus says in Matthew 5. It's one of the Beatitudes. Blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. John the Baptist feared God, lost his head, and in the end gained glory. Herod Antipas feared man, lost his soul, and in the end gained what? Nothing. You know what happened to Herod Antipas? You know his later history? He went to Rome and begged the emperor, who was Caligula, to bestow upon him the title of king. And not only did Caligula refuse to give him the title of king, he banished him to Gaul, modern-day France where Herod Antipas lived out the rest of his days and died in obscurity. As for John, he was not only the forerunner of Jesus, he was the prototype of Jesus. Because in his sufferings, we see the suffering of Christ. Like John, Jesus was a righteous and holy man, verse 20. Only perfectly so. Like John, Jesus was arrested and chained and unjustly murdered, not just as a prophet like John was, but as our perfect sacrifice for sins. And the final words of our text, verse 29, sound eerily similar to what happened to Jesus after he died on the cross. His disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. In John's life, we see Jesus. The cross-shaped life that we're talking about involves suffering. It invites persecution. But our Savior Jesus walked that road a long, long time before you did. And he says it's safe. You can walk that road. Join me on the path of suffering. By his grace and empowered by his spirit, 
we can go and offer hope to the world and embrace suffering. How's that for an odd concept? Embrace suffering for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this wonderful man, John the Baptist, whom we will meet one day. This unusual man dressed in camel's hair, wearing a leather belt and eating grasshoppers and honey, and yet who stood fast when the culture was going the other way. Lord, may we learn from him to do likewise, but may we also look beyond John to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and now he's sat down at the right hand of the Father. Lord, give us a vision for heaven. Give us a vision for glory so that as we suffer, as we sometimes are persecuted, may we not hurl back insults at people. May we not be proud and self-righteous and have a spirit of hubris about us. May we be humble and loving. May we, as we talked about earlier today, speak the truth, but in love and with full respect for those around us. Lord Jesus, fill us with your spirit. Help us to be disciples who make disciples, even if it means persecution. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.